you to be ignorant. Paul says in First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, a little bit before chapter 5, verse 1, on page, uh, again, 987 of your pew Bible, if you want it there in the ESV, you can use your own Bible, etc. But we're going to start for a moment with verse 13 and then move into chapter 5. Because, well, it's the context, and we just saw these verses like three times, at least twice, maybe three times. I mean, twice on the same day a couple weeks ago, uh, wherein we comforted each other with the remembrance of the end of the world, which is to come. Right? Comfort one another with these words uh, was not only uh, what we then had as a, as a reading, but on All Saints Day, I believe it was in the commemoration. Right, And so... Uh, that's what's here. I don't want you to be ignorant, he says. And this is maybe a sad thing. He's going to talk about heaven. But really, I mean, really, couldn't I just say that to like the world right now a little bit? Like, hey, we're getting a bit ignorant. As Christians, we don't want that. We don't want that for ourselves. We don't want that for our neighbors, right? What do ignorant neighbors do? They ruin the neighborhood is what they do. Right? We, we don't want that. We don't want stupidity. Uh, and stupidity means believing whatever somebody says, right? Uh, bumper stickers often sound true, but that doesn't mean they are. <laughs> Certainly not always. You can take something that is true in one place, very true, necessarily true, and then you make it the only thing you know, and you're an idiot with what you do with that. So here's Paul is going to tell us something that is true that I said this a couple of weeks ago. We must believe for wisdom. We must believe in the world that is to come to understand the perishable value of this world. And so he doesn't want us to be ignorant, he says, concerning those who perish in this world. He calls that falling asleep. Lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. And in this section, of course, he's dealing with death. And the fact that in Christ, nobody dies, even though it sure looks like it, and we put their body in the ground. But they're not dead, they're in Christ, and they're only sleeping. And then on the last day, he's going to return and raise those very same bodies from the dead, which is why we do tend to make a practice of burying them near each other. Long-standing habit, because we believe we're going to wake up someday. Right. So uh, concerning that, don't be ignorant. There's a day of resurrection coming. Uh, he explains it. Verse 14, if we believe Jesus died and rose again, well, so also us. Right. Those who've fallen asleep, they're not going to stay dead. The grave no longer has power over anybody. Even the wicked won't stay dead. They're coming back for judgment. And that's what hell is actually about. Right. Uh, so verse 15, uh, for this, we say to you by a word of the Lord. That we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. What a time to be alive that will be, and we're all going to be alive that day. Which picture you get, the one that watches and then gets it, or the one that gets it first? Ah, you know, That's for Jesus to know right now and you to find out. We each have our own path in it, though. Right? And then we who are alive, let's say it happens in our lifetime, we're caught up. That's where the word rapture comes from in the Greek there. We're caught up together with him in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. 
which I think has a lot more to do with the power of God, the incarnation of God as man, and the reign of humanity over the principalities and powers of the present darkness than about flying like Superman. But if we fly like Superman, I'm not going to worry about it. I'll have fun while we do it, right? So one way or the other, though, Jesus will demonstrate his authority over everything when he returns and will meet him as his own and always be with him. Therefore, verse 18, comfort one another with these words, right? First, don't be ignorant. Second, comfort each other. Comfort each other with such words. And indeed, the study of the scriptures isn't just about opening the book so you can maybe do your due. It's about looking for words that comfort you. Why do you read the Bible? Not because you have to, I hope. <laughs> As there are words that will comfort you, and maybe you haven't found them yet because you're reading Leviticus against. I mean, it's a good book, but really, Proverbs, Psalms, go, right? Uh, you will find words that comfort you. Go back to them. I'm reading this Psalter Pastor one psalm a day for 150 days, and you know, I really liked 18, but it's like 53 now, and I haven't found another one I like. Go back to 18. Do it again and again and again and again until it falls out your face, just whenever. You'll find it happening. It's really kind of neat. So again, uh, uh, comforting each other with these words leads into the section we then just heard read, chapter 5, verse 1, our focus. Concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. So basically, with regard to how we know when the last day is coming, you know, are we in the last times or not? He says, I don't even have to tell you. You know, we are. We are, it's not a question. We have been, we will be. Don't be surprised that the world is going to end and therefore will usually look like it's ending, right? If it isn't the kingdom collapsing, it's a tsunami, right? I mean, it's one thing or another. Nothing's the way it ought to be. Huh? Uh, expect this. For you yourselves know, verse 2, Perfectly there it says. Now that word, I've talked about this before. Anytime you find perfect in your English Bible, remember, it's not a moral word. We use it as a moral word in English, but in the Bible, it's not a moral word. Uh, it's, it's more like a full cup, right? Uh, if, you, if you have an imperfect cup, then it's half full right? uh, or three quarters full. But if you fill it all the way, it's perfect. Well, no one sits there and like measures the top of the cup to find out and maybe your, your, your head on your beer a little bit. But other than that, no one's paying that much attention to it, right? Um, so the idea here is just, you, you know this. This isn't the question. It's not a question that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Like we're not supposed to come to Christianity and be like, well, is Jesus coming back? Will we be ready for it? Like that's, it this is so evident to us. And then therefore we may know that the same pattern and habit we saw in the Old Testament will apply You'll have great powers that say, peace, safety, follow me. And they will lead many to destruction. Some of these will be governments. Some of these will be companies. Some of these will be religions. Some of these will be families. I mean, just all the way down, whatever little grouping of herd human you want to put together, there will be those who call out peace and safety and lead you off a cliff into death. Usually for a good price. Yeah, snake oil, my baby. Uh, so, well, that's happening. Destruction will come upon many. Expect this, friends, neighbors, countries, the end of the world. Sudden destruction will come on them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman. And, and this is where some of getting ahead a little bit, where Jesus goes in Matthew 24 and 25, I think is, is very important. That the day of the Lord, that phrase in the Bible, isn't 
only one day at one time in our history. It is the existence of day as created by God so that the day of the Lord is always coming. The day of the Lord is always finished and it is good, right? And the day of the Lord is always today, the day of salvation. Always. Now, that broad spectrum can come down in your experience on very specific points. So like your house burned down. It was the day of the Lord for your house. <laughs> you know, you're a Christian though. Yeah, you know, he disciplines his sons. You know, but what am I supposed to do? Trust and pray. I mean, that's the whole religion right there, right? And it doesn't have to be a burning down house. But the day of the Lord comes, destruction comes, judgment comes, perdition comes, and so your body will die, and that will be the day of the Lord for you. And you won't see it coming as much as you would like, probably. And if you do, it won't make you happy that you do. <laughs> uh, and so to see all of this talk about the last day as also pertaining to your actual death in this life that you know is coming, I think it's very, very valuable. Don't live as if your life's going to be the same five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now, and don't assume you're going to be here. Might not be. And if you assume you will be, I promise you, if there's a chance you won't be, it'll make you more afraid than if you're really not too worried about it because you're, you could not be. You could die and go to heaven and that would be good. And you know that, you tell yourself that, you, you honestly believe that. I'll raise my hand and say, that's never been easy for me. I like life. I don't want to go away. <laughs> the older I get, the more it hurts. That's on purpose, by the way. Everybody get ready for it, right? The older you get, the more it hurts, prepares you so that while you are young enough to have energy, you can take care of the small ones, right? And you get old and they got to take care of you. And that's sort of the generations all at work, yeah? Um. We are to be walking in the awareness, though, that this means we die. And so we are not to be surprised when the suffering does come. And that can be everything from, I woke up and I stubbed my toe, right? And what do you say at that moment? Who do you blame at that moment? Where is your heart and your soul at that moment? All the way from that up to, you know, the car wreck, the nuclear bomb, the, the great catastrophe, the thing you can't expect, uh, all of this we're to expect again. What we can't expect, we are to expect. And then know that in such moments, that's why we have a savior. We're living in a valley of the shadow of death and we have a shepherd whose name is Jesus. And when you call, he answers but they shall not escape, it says, right? As peace and safety, sudden pain comes upon them as a labor, woman in labor. So while you will escape, right, they shall not. And I said this to someone spontaneously this morning. It's so valuable. It's so true. Whatever goes on in the next 15, 20, 20, 25, 35 years in America, who dies, who lives, what happens, where, world hunger and blah, 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 wars and viruses and all the rest of it. I tell you what, I might die, but we are going to be here. I might die, but we're going to be here. You might die, but we're going to be here because Christianity is going to be here. That confidence, again, means that you are not going to be taken by surprise. Huh? Even when they don't escape, you are not in darkness so that the day should overtake you as a thief. 
You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. You could sing that a few times. Think on it. Notice that. Well, is it law or gospel? It sure is good news, I think. You are all sons of light. There's no darkness in you now. Why? Because of Jesus. But I find sin within me and temptation. Yep, you do. And that's the fight. That's the adventure. But the promise is you're already born again. And nothing's stopping the new man from arising in you. That's God's work. He's going to do this. You are sons of light, sons of day, not in the darkness. Therefore, since this is true, right? Since you're already immortal. (laughs) Let us not sleep as others do. But let us watch and be sober. Here he's going to use a number of metaphors for uh, paying attention, really. I mean, the whole thing is like, do you know what you did today? Or did you just get blown by the wind around you? You know, I think most like four-year-olds probably think they were in charge. In some houses, they might be, I suppose. But, but like, you know what I'm saying? Like, they think today, once as they plant, they have no idea how much went on around them to make the day occur the way that it did. Yeah. And so uh, this is the idea is that we as Christians would have that kind of heightened perspective compared to the world around us because we're going to watch while they're all just happily distracted. They want to be distracted from their very sad and painful lives. We are repenting in the midst of our very sad and painful lives and glad to see it's worth paying attention. And he's, he's saying that to us, right? Pay attention. And then all the bit about sleep and drunkenness, that's just either not paying attention or paying attention, right? So when you're asleep, how much are you watching? Not that much. If you're drunk, how quickly can you react? Not very well, right? That, that's the idea here. He's not really talking about alcohol, um, although he will in a moment a little bit. Um, uh, uh, actually, he does when he, he mentions that, you know, alcohol here is an image of the bigger problem. So, you know, you go out to dinner and there's some guy over in the bar and he's shouting and everyone knows, right? Let's not look like that to our neighbors, whatever that means, right? That, that's the idea here. We want to look like we know what we're doing, we belong here, and we have hope. He's going to get to that, right? Let us of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. A little, little taste of the armor of God there, right? If you want more, go to Ephesians 6. Uh, but here it is kind of in, in brevity. And whereas you have on the one hand the image of somebody sleeping or drunk or maybe sleeping off his drink. On the other hand, here you have someone, a man, putting on a breastplate and a helmet. Right? Getting ready for the fight. Getting ready for the day, right? And the breastplate isn't metal. It's, he calls it faith and love here. And in, in Ephesians 6, I believe uh, faith is all that's mentioned. But the idea is that what you know to be forever true because God has promised it to be true to you is better than a breastplate. Uh, so that when I have faith, say trust, when I trust that Jesus is my king, That is on my person like an armor through which nothing can get. And even if I'm like scared to death, guess what? The armor's still around me. That's your infant-like faith in Christ. 
infant like, barely there, but you trust him. You know you do. Where else would you go? <laughs> Lord, to whom shall we go? We sing it, right? It means something. Uh, so you have the faith and then love, which is going to be about him loving you, but it's also going to be what you experience as life. What is the purpose of life? I'm going to go out on a limb and say it's love. Love, however, isn't this. Oh, God, thank you. You love me so much. It feels so good. Love me more. Keep loving me. It's all about me being loved by you. See, that's not love. That's, that's like lust or passion or self-gratification or who knows what, you know, greed. Uh, but, but the thing that Jesus will, will do to you, right, as he says, I'm going to teach you about my love, huh, is you'll find that love is out. So there will be people in front of you as a Christian who you will discover are in some ways smaller than you. Sometimes they're your kids, so it's really easy. They're actually smaller than you, right? But sometimes you're talking and you realize this person's mind, their heart, their soul is smaller than me. They get angry, they're rude, they're uncivilized, they're immature. There's all sorts of things people do. As a Christian, you have the freedom to not like get mad about it, let them know it, make sure they change. You can, in fact, step around the spikiness of whatever you, you know, uncivilization you're dealing with and pursue the good of the individual because they're a human. Not just because Jesus died for them, that too, but they're a, they're a human. If you look long enough, you'll see they hurt. Everyone does. And if you can see that now, that's love. You see the hurt. And now the action between you is going to change. And you will act as the mature giver, sacrificer, bearer with, who knows what you got to actually do. Uh, while that person may not even know you helped. And they might go on boast about how great they were, but it doesn't matter. It's, 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 love isn't about getting. While you are being given to give, what you will find is you don't need anymore. <laughs> you won't give more. That's how love is. It goes forward. So as a breastplate, I mean, again, imagine if you walk into a room and no matter what they say to you, you're ready to go because you're ready to love them even when they hatefully spite you. Huh? That's a breastplate. Am I claiming to have attained this? Let's go back to Philippians, right? No, not that I've attained this, but forgetting what is behind, I press on, right? I, I, this isn't about perfectly achieving. It's about knowing Jesus is perfectly in charge, right? Uh, and then walking as such with a breastplate and then the hope of the helmet, that's of what's to come, right? So my head, my, my heart is protected by the fact I trust Jesus and by the fact that he's telling me I'm going to learn how to love people. Hallelujah to that. Who can get mad about that? Well, wicked people. But anyway, my mind is then given to hope, to look forward, to foresee better things, right? Uh, my mind is given to have a helmet of hope on it. And I would suggest to you that this is absolutely about the day of the Lord, the last day when Jesus returns, return of the King. Shout hallelujah. And it's, it's also about today. It's also about today. Uh, that... Jesus is your savior from whatever is in your life that you need to be saved from today. And maybe that's a small thing. Maybe it is. Maybe you don't have enemies at the gates exactly. 
But that's not a reason to realize you have the Almighty God watching your every move, recording your every word, and wanting to help you generally have a good time of it. Call on him in every trouble. Pray, praise, and give thanks, a wise guy once wrote. Put it on hope on your head. Nine, for God did not appoint us to wrath. Again, this is confidence here. Uh, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, right? You're appointed, you're elected, you're chosen. Jesus who died for us. That whether we wake or sleep, we should live together with him, right? So whether we are dead or as the, as the world sees it, right? In the grave or whether we wait for his return, we are alive with him and that will never end. It will only continue to get better. Again, therefore comfort each other and edify one another just as you also are doing. One of the best things about life at St. Paul as a pastor is how many conversations I walk up to or in uh, that are already about spiritual things. I've been asking you to do it for three, four years. I've been saying, talk about stuff in the night, and it's happened, and it's beautiful. You are, you are edifying each other. You want your conversation to be about something more than just what is perishing. And what I like about it is that there's not a lot of like, you better talk that way here either. <laughs> uh, people talk about sports too. Yeah. Uh, but, but we're aware of the passing nature of nature and of the everlasting higher things. Right? And this is a glorious thing we've got that's been given as a deposit for us to steward and care with, care for and, and drive out you know, into, the, into the world as a, as a mission. Um, let's go to the Matthew text now. Um, and I'm going to work from the bulletin uh, for this one. Um, here we have Jesus in the middle of Holy Week. He is he's in his game. Right? Jesus in Holy Week isn't nice. And I might even suggest to you that Jesus isn't nice. you got to define nice a little bit, but um, Jesus is kind. Not nice. And, and why would I make that distinction? I think nice is kind of mean these days, actually. <laughs> you know, it, it, it sort of means like no one gets to have a difference or an opinion, right? You know, that wouldn't be nice if we disagreed or something, right? And so uh, Jesus is, is quite disagreeable publicly at this point, almost to the level, not almost, to the level where the opening statements he's making aren't about you at all, really. They're about the Sadducees and Pharisees, and he's calling them out eye to eye in the great assembly and saying, hey, I'm coming for you guys, and they're going to kill him because of what he says. So it's that, it's that intense, right? And we're just kind of jumping in here in the middle of, of a lot of this. But he is talking about the end of the world. He is talking about the day of the Lord. He is talking about what all of this means for you as well. And so I'm going to say this word refraction, refraction, or think of an echo. Everything he says about the Sadducees and Pharisees applies to every human being that ever lived with regard to your own body and your own soul. And the thrust of this parable at the end is, in fact, one of those sticky in the gut, grab you with a hook and pull ones. I mean, this isn't like a go in peace, you are free be lazy, lackadaisical, greedy, selfish, and don't worry about it. That's not what he's doing. <laughs> uh, he's going to scare us a little bit here. And the thrust of it is, nobody can believe for you. That's, that's the summary of everything else I'm going to say in, in the text. Nobody can believe for you. Either you are inspired by the Holy Spirit to believe, or you 
or not. And the Holy Spirit says, I promise everybody, so it, it ain't his fault. Right? And I don't think you're here because you don't believe. But Jesus is going to say to the crowds, uh, there, are many, there are many who just don't believe, but they think they do. Who then is a faithful and wise servant? Right? Who's the true believer? Yes, in one way. Whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season. And remember, he's looking the Sadducees in the eye. <laughs> no, you've been made rulers over this temple to give the sacrifices for the sake of atonement as the prescriptions of Moses demand, right? And who has done that? It seems to me you're beating the people. Yeah. Um, blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Um, verse 48, the evil servant says, my master delayed. He begins to beat his fellow servants. So and I'm going to hover in that whole section here, though. Um, you might remember that there is an event that takes place during the Holy Week where a, a widow creeps her way up to this poor box and puts in just a couple pennies effectively to it, the mites. Um, and, and Jesus points out that this happens. And this is often seen as sort of like a good thing, but in the context, it's not good at all. He's, he's pointing out the hypocrisy of the whole thing because the box she's putting the money into is supposed to take care of widows, you see. And she's going to go starve. And he's like, hey, look, what just happened? No one even noticed. She's going to go starve because you're all teaching her to love God that way, money. That's what's going on in this context. And he's saying, you're not feeding that widow. What's he say to Peter after the resurrection? Feed my sheep, feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Jesus is ultimately concerned with the word of God being given to people everywhere, always. And these men were not doing that, and we're only not doing that so much. The family of Caiaphas continues to persecute Christianity for a good century or longer. They went underground uh, in, in the Holy Land. Uh, they were not going to let this resurrected body theory have any water, although they couldn't stop it. So again, this is very personal, I think, right, for Jesus at this moment. Um, but it's also then for you who is a faithful and wise servant, whom his master made ruler over his household and gave him food in due season. Jesus isn't coming to you to challenge you and say, you're probably not. That's not the point here. For you, Christian, the question is, do you want to be a faithful and wise servant? And the answer is going to be yes. And then look what it says. Guess what you do? You feed people. Who? Who do I feed? Whoever you're given to feed. That's it. Yeah. And oh, well, what about a small child? What could they do? Fish. I don't know. The worms. I don't know. It'll come. If you would like to feel fulfilled in life, give someone food. Watch it happen. You'll feel nice about it, right? It is what we are to do with our authority. It is what the king is to be for. The problem that I have in general with the philosophy of taxation <laughs> is that at least in natural law and biblically, the point of the kingdom is the king provides the bread and the wall. Yeah. Yeah. Did you know this? I'm told left turn here a little bit, but um, I know you've seen the races. Someone's got to help me. There's a, there's a city on the coast of Spain where they have these races up and down these curvy streets. Come on. Nobody knows. Um, hmm? Monaco, that's it. It's a country with a king. Do you know that? It's a country with a king. You know, I became king. He started a casino in his house, kind of in the area of Spain, and no one stopped him. And now he's king of Monaco. 
and the country pays you to live there with the proceeds from the casino. I'm not saying let's start a casino. I'm saying kings don't have to take. That's what I'm saying. Okay, kings don't have to take. And so Jesus sees service, ministry, kingdom. What do you want to call it? As taking care of the one below you in their most necessary needs, which food is always going to be primarily there, right? And the promise of verse 46 is that when you do what you're supposed to do with yours, God likes to give you more of it. And the paradise that is to come is the full expression of that in every way for every single one of us. Surely you'll be made rulers over all the goods, all the goods. Right? There'll be enough to go around. But then the thing is to, to forget, what does the evil servant do? He forgets that better is coming. He forgets that God has more. He forgets that there's honey in the rock when God wants there to be. And so he says, no one's watching. That's my master is delayed in coming in verse 48. That means nobody really sees. Yeah. And he begins to again beat his fellow servants, eat and drink with the drunkards. For your own life, just translate that as live as if this life is what matters. What's that look like for you? I, I don't know. I know you're tempted to it every day because we are, and it's a battle. So I'm not saying this so you go home and like beat yourself up. I'm saying it so you keep in the fight of remembering the day is coming. I'll just sort of try to emote this here for half a second with my own experience. I mean, where this most tangibly exists for me right now is anytime there's a bill that I'm not expecting, which is more often than I would like in my life. Anytime there's a bill I'm not expecting, the, the lifelong habit of like, Oh no, where's the money going to come from? Is very slowly, like by, by meager millimeters, turn into, ha, I get to spend money, let's throw it away. And I, I take like three seconds and I really do tell myself, like, I'll just spend more. How much does it cost? Let's get the nicest one. Just to get over my own idiocy of thinking there won't be enough. I don't advocate frivolity or stupidity. Right. But for my battle against my greed, that's kind of what it looks like. It's like, oh, maybe I should realize all the money's in the account so that I spend it on the good things that others need. And um, if you don't know what bills might show up unexpectedly, you know, you don't get to choose if braces are recommended or not, right? So there's, there's all this in life that comes. And it's easy to start thinking years and years ahead, start to get excited and then afraid. And again, Jesus is saying, do what's under you today. So that if he returns today, you're not storing all the money, the talent in the sand for later, right? But you're investing in what's here right now. Verse 49, verse 50. It gets pretty scary for the ones that don't believe. The master of the servant will come on a day when he, when he the servant, is not looking for him. That's the thrust here, right? Watch, watch, watch. Um, and in an hour, he is not aware of. And he will cut him in two and appoint his portion with the hypocrites. No one puts that on confirmation cards. I don't know why. Right? It's, it's, it's terrifying. Cut in two. But, and, and again, he's in the temple courts, like, look at it, Caiaphas. Right? <laughs> you know? So, like, wow, the brass on this guy again. 
But for us then to see the severity of this, that the wicked are wicked and Jesus has no patience really for them. Um, Meredith and I yesterday were chatting about this phrase. I know you've probably heard it said, you know, hate the sin, love the sinner. And we were talking about this because it's one of those things where like in his place, it's okay. But then again, people make it everything and then it ruins stuff. Um, you really are supposed to hate the sinner because he's like screaming wicked things at you or something. And you're supposed to like hate that experience. You don't want it. <laughs> you want it to be gone. You loathe the experience. Or I think of it this way. It's a really good example. You're ever somewhere. There's less of this these days, by the way. But you're ever somewhere and someone says, Jesus Christ, and they are blaspheming. You know that feeling where you're like, Ugh, that's hate. That's good hate. It's okay. Right? Hate that they did that. Ooh, you blasphemed. That's wrong, right? Um, so it is okay then to rejoice in knowing that the evil one will get his due. And that's what Jesus means with cutting him in two and a portion, his portion. No one's getting injustice from Jesus. You either get mercy or strict justice. And so for those who are outside of him, strict justice is what comes. And he says, weeping, gnashing of teeth. It's, it's not pretty. Yeah. And then the parable of, of the 10, or the 10 virgins, wise and foolish, which I think I've preached on this maybe four, seven times, lots of times. The first time I preached on it was my first sermon I ever delivered uh, publicly after vicarage, which meant that I preached it at the seminary chapel in St. Louis. And that pulpit, man, that thing is just it's a ship. Um, and uh, I remember being you know, real excited about that moment. I was just going to hit the law gospel out of the park. And I don't think it was a bad sermon. But I insisted that the key to the riddle, what's the oil? What's the oil? That the answer was Jesus. And um, the, the trick is I've since heard and before that heard other Lutheran pastors insist that the oil is the Holy Spirit. And now you find yourself in something of a pickle, right? Because, I mean, they're both kind of right. And then that, what happens for me, if I get to a place where like there's two answers in a riddle, then I assume I've got the wrong answer. That he's really pushing on something different. That Jesus isn't trying to give us an allegory for how to go to heaven by getting the right stuff if we try harder now that we know. Like that's just more of the stupid. It's this thing I said before. He's just pointing out how no one can believe for you. I mean, really, if, if the unbeliever comes to you on judgment day and says, give me some of your faith, you're not going to be like, no. <laughs> and you're going to be like, I can't. It's mine. I can't, I mean, it's mine. I can talk about it. I can confess it. I can witness it, right? But you believe or you don't. And that's the five foolish, five wise. And then, I mean, if you want to put some meat on it, Okay, so then what are you doing while you wait? They all fall asleep, it says. Every single one of them. You're going to try to stay up and wait? Watch, watch, watch. You're going to die. You're going to fall asleep. You're going to fall asleep. So are you going to be ready to fall asleep? All right. And then that, again, is to believe that it's coming, to know that whatever's here is good for today, and maybe will be good for tomorrow, but there's no guarantees of that at all. So use it for good today. And believe that the master who sees you doing that will reward you with tomorrow. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day or the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. 
We have a few more moments here. I'm a little ahead of, of what I expected to be schedule-wise, and I'm just thinking about, you know, I'll probably end early, but um, I want to bring it back, trying to decide whether we should go to Isaiah or not, or just kind of loop around. I think I'll just loop around on the framework of the end of the world. Uh, I, I said this way back, I think, when we started. It might have been at the setup part of that. might have been the week after. But, like, a lot of what we know as Christians is like in this place or in that place. The old theologians called them loki, you know, Latin for place. Um, so the Lord's Supper, right? It's, it's in a place. It's over there. And, uh, and then when we talk about it, it holds a certain set of categories that we think about food and you know, um, religion and things like that. So most of what we know as Christians is like that. It has a place. The end of the world doesn't have a place. It is a place. So we have, we have two places. We have now and the end of the world, right? And so the end of the world isn't really a, a thing. Uh, it's a, it's a, a time in which we are already. Lord's Supper is over there. The end of the world's like every direction at once. I'm inside of it, right? And so it's a framework more than a place. And if that was too deep for you today, throw it away, okay? But if that helped you, right? That's why you never get away from the end of the world in all your talk about anything in the Bible. When you talk about the Lord's Supper, it's the end of the world today. Jesus' body coming from heaven, returning with the clouds. I mean, it's right there. That's why they do incense, to show the clouds off. <laughs> so like, like, it's always about the end of the world. Baptism, you died. It was the end of the world, but you're alive again forevermore. Right? Uh, now, but not yet, is one way that like the 20th century Lutherans would talk about it in English. The now, but not yet. So, uh, the end of the world, the framework of the end of days and the freedom then of walking through it and like use the image of Abraham or Moses and the people in the desert where everything you got, think of your house, your land, your cats, your dogs, your all the rest of it, everything you got that's so permanent, think of it as if it's a tent in the desert. You got to pack it up every day, walk with it, set it up again. Even though you don't have to do that, that's as good as it is to you in the long run. It is more useful for your children than a tent would be. Uh, as long as they understand it's only as good to them as a tent would be in the long run. The moment they think the land is the thing, they worship the land, and now God has to tear it away, right? Idolatry always is torn down. Trust in God is always fed with more word. And again, the frame, I walk in the midst of the fire. The fire is going to come. I'm going to build up my sandcastle. I'm going to watch the wave come, knock it down. I'm going to build a sandcastle again. I'm going to watch the wave come. Wave is going to take me with it. I'm in heaven. That's the Christian walk every day in little bits. And then it echoes, it refracts to weeks and months and seasons and years, individual lives, communities, families, tribes, even nations. So the end of the world. It's today, it's tomorrow, it's soon enough. It is coming for real with tangible effect. But again, you only get to live today, right now. In the name of Jesus. Amen.